Joey Laboot's killer still hasn't been found. Joey disappeared in Columbus, Ohio on March the 5th, 2017. Then his body was found in the river, but there were no signs of any violence against his body. He wasn't shot, he wasn't stabbed. But stranger still was that there was no water in his lungs or his stomach, so he hadn't drowned. Four years on, it's still an unsolved case. Joel Oliphant for Columbus Alive News wrote, Joel Boot wasn't the type to bar hop. He was a homebody, content to play video games and watch Sleeping Beauty or Game of Thrones. He liked to knit scarves. But on Friday, March the 4th of last year, he ditched his Kahana apartment for a night on the town at Union Cafe in the Short North. His cousin Stacy Rigel and her then-husband Kyle, along with other family and friends, were going to be at the Union Cafe to celebrate. Joey had recently come out as gay. Just a couple of days earlier, on the Wednesday, Stacy and her husband had hosted Laboo to their house so that he could tell people this news about him coming out. They'd had dinner and then played Monopoly until late in the evening when Stacy had proposed the idea of going to the Union Cafe. Oliphant says, Joey replied, I don't know, I might be busy on Friday. But Oliphant adds, he was totally kidding. His idea of being busy was watching Netflix on the couch. On Friday, Joey met with some co-workers to go for a pizza in the short north. And after this, he made his way to the Union Cafe, as agreed, where Stacy and Kyle and other family and friends met him after about 9pm. The cafe was actually a lot more busy than normal. Although it's already a popular nightlife spot on any weekend, but this particular weekend coincided with the Arnold Sports Festival. Now this brings about 20,000 athletes from around the world and up to 100,000 spectators into town every year. Some of the events take place at the Hilton in Columbus downtown or otherwise at the Greater Columbus Convention Centre, but they're both only about a 15 minute walk down the street from the Union Cafe. Oliphant, the reporter, interviewed Kyle, who said that night they didn't know a bunch of other people. He said, we stayed in our little corner. While Joey, on the other hand, apparently mingled around and flitted from table to table, ordering a gin and tonic, and later getting a raspberry vodka with Sprite for his cousin Stacy, and having the same for himself too. Oliphant says, like a lot of people, Laboot tended to be more social after a couple of drinks. It was a side of him that his family didn't often get to see. Friends and acquaintances chatted and danced with Joey as the night went on. Joey's best friend Justin Mertz, his best friend since sixth grade, tended bar there and he was working that night and he noticed Joey, but the two apparently weren't on speaking terms anymore because of what Justin had called a stupid and petty argument that had come to a head a couple of weeks prior. Just after midnight, his cousin's husband, Kyle, said he wasn't feeling too great and that they wanted to go home, but they couldn't find Joey. So they waited for 10 minutes or so, and they texted him and called him, trying to let him know they were going to go, but they didn't get any replies. But Joey had come on his own, driven his own car there, so there was nothing to worry about, really. He was an independent grown-up. He was 26, and he held a responsible job at Morgan Stanley. He'd graduated from Ohio State University. He'd parked his car nearby, beside some residential apartments called Throbber Gate and he had walked with his cousin's wife to go to the bar. 
A female cousin, who was also there, called him to ask him where he was, and he answered his phone this time and told her he was driving, which is obviously not that strange. Maybe he'd had a disagreement with someone or wanted some air. Well, who knows, but the thing was, he vanished into thin air. The police found his car still parked in the same spot he'd left it in when he'd gone to the bar. So if he was driving, he wasn't driving his own car. He'd also sent a text message that night to a member of his family, while also apparently in a car. But the message didn't make any sense, the family member said. The text message was released to the media. All it said was, J-N-H-S-T-I-O-J. Justin Mertz, the bartender, was interviewed by Oliphant, who said, From day one, he was basically my brother. We instantly clicked. We spent the summer as friends talking about Pokemon and Sailor Moon. When the family moved to Cincinnati for his father's job, they both stayed in touch. When it came to college time, they decided to go to the same campus. Then in 2011, Joey graduated with a financial planning degree. When his father was interviewed, months after his son's death, he said he was never any trouble. He never fussed as a baby. When he was sick, you didn't know it unless you touched him. He said, I can remember maybe three times or four that I ever got upset with him. He was just always like that, so even keeled. It seemed like he never got upset. In 2013, Joey met a man called Eric Renner on a dating app and had a relationship that lasted for about nine months. He got on well with all of his work colleagues. It seems he wasn't an unpredictable, unlikable character. Everybody seemed to like him very much. Nearly a month after he vanished from the bar, his body was found in a river search. At first, the police got hold of all the CCTV surveillance footage from the bar and they went through hours worth of footage from 14 different cameras inside. It wasn't the best quality, but despite scrutinising every person seen in the recordings, they couldn't seem to find the moment that Joey left the bar. They could see people coming and going all night, but they couldn't spot him leave. Eventually, however, in the early hours of the morning, he was spotted, seen walking at an ordinary speed towards the exit of the bar, and he was alone. He didn't have a coat with him. Police say that data from the cell phone towers in the area indicated that Joey's phone was active for at least two hours after he left the bar and that he remained in the short North Grandview area during that time. Now, Oliphant says that at 12.19am, Leboot texted his cousin and the text said, To help, so goo. Well, goo as in it's spelt G-O-O and there's a number five next to it. So, to help, so goo five. Well, Holly interpreted this as Joey saying he was feeling good, he was having a fun night. At 1.22am, he sent another text. And this time it looked like gibberish. It was one word, and the letters were J-N-H-S-T-I-O-L. Well, when this case first happened, I remember looking on a Facebook page for the local news station, and people had begun to try to work out what that word had been supposed to mean. It could possibly have been Johnson or Johnstown, and there is a Johnstown Road in Gohana, and it runs up to and through the city of Johnstown, about 30 minutes from the bar. 
Another contributor said, I looked on Google Maps, there is a John Street about three miles away from Union and Columbus. On maps, it looks like it's a big construction site and pretty isolated. Maybe search there. But another person says, my take on the jumbled letters is it looks like an effort at typing Union Station. While another said, when I use my phone to type the word, it autocorrects to Kingston. Not sure what phone he has or if autocorrect was enabled or not enabled, but it could mean that. Someone suggested it could be a bad swipe text. Johnson comes up when I swipe those letters, although it may not be a swipe at all, because a swipe will usually populate something more legible than that, they say. Another person says, but when I type it in my phone, the phone autocorrects itself, so the chance of it sending those letters put together in that order could be slim, unless you meant to do it. You actually have to click on all the letters if you want to send those exact letters. The idea is that perhaps he was trying to send a text of landmarks that he was passing. But then the thoughts get darker. They, somebody says if he was struggling to use the phone and had to be quick about it, he probably just texted any letters to whatever name his fingers landed on in his contacts if he was in the car and didn't want to get caught using his phone. He must have been secretly trying to text. What if he was texting behind his back or he was blindfolded? Then another person says, I think it looks like a bad swipe or voice to text of, I'm hostage. On that same site for the news station, there was also an interesting comment from a man called Jeff Randall, who said that he's local, and comments, I saw a kid roughly the same age and everything, and looks exactly like Joey Laboot, that morning at High and Vine, and in brackets he puts the Columbus-based rock group playing a gig that night. Anyway, he continues, he said he needed $16 for a Greyhound ticket to get to Florence, Kentucky. He said he'd been on the streets on Columbus for five days. But that was a lie, because the exact same dude stopped me and asked me the exact same thing about one month before, outside some apartments by the pedestrian bridge. He didn't look homeless either. He had exactly the same features. I called the police and told them, if I see him again, I'll update. But I don't plan on being out much. Well, people on the forum, they were doubting his story, so he continues with it, and he says, there's a lot of people pretend they're homeless in that area. They make a good living, especially when drunks hand them money. And if there's events and a larger crowd, it's lucrative. The man who looked so much like him was sort of stressed and emotional. He was almost tearful when he walked away. Well, for anyone that's read my Smiley Face Killers books or heard any of the podcasts I've done on, on the topic will know that in Minnesota, when all of this first began being reported years and years ago, there was a private detective and also some police involvement in a kind of street group who called themselves the Dealers of Death because they'd confessed to killing a young man called Chris Jenkins, who was found also in the river after Halloween. They'd indeed confessed to killing 40 or so men, similarly, and the leader of the group was called Jeremy Alford. And what was strange about the group was that a lot of them seemed to live homeless and would have to be branded with marking to say that they were members of the group. There's a lot more about this group is really for another podcast but I picked up the comment about this, this homeless person looking like Jerry because it reminded me so much of, of their confession. Well, a GoFundMe donation page was set up to investigate Joey's death and before he was found. And somebody had written on there about this strange text, this one word. And they said, I think the text reads hostage. I don't know this young man, but I found the whole thing quite disturbing. I was watching the coverage on 10 TV 6pm news on the 3rd and noticed something very strange. 
The couple behind the reporter at the Union Cafe look very similar to the couple seen on the escalator with Brian Schaefer ten years ago. Well, of course, Brian Schaefer is an exceptionally famous case because he too disappeared from a bar in Columbus, Ohio, but his body has never been found. Of course, these could all be red herrings and take you down the wrong avenues, but there's a lot of strangeness involved in some of these cases, not only because they're so similar, but weird coincidences too. Even, for example, I was following the police activities in the days after Jerry's disappearance, and again, probably not related, but one day after his body was actually found dead in the water, the Columbus police had posted on their Facebook page, Police gear stolen, please share. Last night, sometime before 11.30, two officers had their vehicle windows broken and gear and equipment stolen. The police vehicle had been parked up when it was broken into, and two police uniforms, as well as radio communication, equipment were stolen. Well, perfect then for anyone who wants to pretend to be a police officer. A perfect disguise. So that's another possibility. His car had been parked outside Gate Complex, where he used to share an apartment with Mertz, but he often used that spot there as well to park when he drove into the North Shore. There is the possibility that because Jerry had used dating apps in the past, that he was using a dating app that night in the bar. Maybe he'd gone off because he'd met someone through the app and they were going to have a date. But the police have never confirmed this or gone into any detail really about what was on his phone. On the Sunday, March the 6th, his worried family created flyers and started combing the short north area for him down every turning, looking for anything that could help them. When he didn't show up for work, everybody knew that he was in trouble. Days passed without any sign of him, until March the 29th, when the police reported that they'd found a body in the river. The Franklin County Coroner's Office told police that it was very, very likely Joey was dead before he was in the water. The police didn't consider that this could be a case of suicide. Well, obviously you can't be dead and then get into the water, but also his friends and family could think of no problems in his life that would have caused him to take such an action. Nobody knew of any difficulties or issues that he was going through. Detective Wooten spoke to Oliphant and he said, there's no physical trauma and no known medical issues. There's really only one option left. And he brought up the possibility of certain drugs that can dissipate in the body after a short period of time. He said GHB is a drug that could possibly be used in date rate scenarios. Well, of course, in a lot of these cases where young men have disappeared and been found later, there are traces of GHB. In others, we'll never know because the tests weren't carried out. Of course, there's things like scopolamine as well, which disappears very quickly from your system, but can render you completely compliant. It's called devil's breath. And you can be made to do anything and not even know that you've done it. Also, the human body has GHB in low levels already in its body. And after death and decomposition, the levels become elevated. So according to Franklin County Coroner Chief Toxologist Dan Baker, he said the human body has these low levels and these normal levels become elevated in everybody after death as decomposition sets in, so it would be impossible to tell if someone had exposure to GHB in a decomposed state. He continued though, with that said, in my experience, GHB use in date rape scenarios is exceedingly rare, and more commonly it would be alcohol. Well, Joey's wallet and keys were never found, 
Was he meeting someone that he knew? So somebody that he felt completely comfortable with? Was it somebody he'd known in past dating or a friend even? Was there an accident? Was there some disagreement that was not supposed to turn into murder and the person panicked? Although oddly, Sergeant Sicilian said the big question for us is, did he die at the hands of another? There's no indication of that. But then how did he get into the water if he was already dead? Is the most logical explanation that he was in someone's car and was being taken somewhere against his will. The person or people who were taking him perhaps told him to answer his phone when it rang to give them time to do what they wanted to do without arousing any more suspicion. When he'd said on the phone, I'm driving, is that what was happening? They wanted him to let his family know he was okay and yet, just by the fact that he hardly spoke and then sent a strange text message with just one word, would surely seem to imply he was being forced to do something. Forced to answer the phone and appear as normal as possible to ensure that the family did not immediately call the police? It bought his killer's time? If that's the case, one can only imagine the terror that had to be going through his mind, knowing that he couldn't say what was happening to him, hoping that his captors would free him, if he went along with what they told him to do, knowing he had no choice. On the other hand, his mind might not have been functioning at all if he had been rendered insensible from some kind of drug. In the case of some of these disappearing men, we know that they have been injected with something. A spokesman for the police, Sergeant Dave Sicilian, said after his body was found, we are treating his death as suspicious. My understanding of it is the dive team came out early this morning as part of the special victims unit. They were checking into missing persons and they wanted to check bodies of water. The dive team came out late morning to do a systematic search of this particular body of water. It didn't seem like the body was too decomposed. It seemed in relatively good condition. I can't comment on any wounds, but like I said, we believe it's a suspicious death. We couldn't make a positive ID. The river was just south of downtown Columbus. The coroner said, we cannot determine with 100% accuracy. However, it does appear there's a very high probability that he was dead prior to going into the water. When his body was found, they already suspected that it was Joey because he was still wearing the same clothes that he'd last been seen in. And although the detective first said his body didn't appear too badly decomposed, the coroner later said that the condition of his body made immediate identification impossible. So how long was he in the water then? And yet, that stretch of water, according to newspaper reports, had been repeatedly searched in the weeks before his body was found. So was his body there all the time, or was it taken a lot later and placed in the water there? Would that mean that the person doing it knew that the police were searching that part of the river for a long time and waited until they felt it was safe to go there and put the body in? Whether he died on the night he was taken or in one of the following days, we don't know. If he didn't die on that night, it does imply that he was taken and held somewhere, which again has happened in other cases that are very similar. His body was found in a way they describe as half submerged, approximately two miles from the bar and near the boat launch off Whittier Street and close to the Scioto Audubon Metro Park. But the police have said, though, that they don't know where his body entered the water, so although it was found there, had it travelled in the stream. At the time of this, his family began raising funds to try and hire a private eye. There's still so many questions left about this really tragic case.
and why, of course, it's so similar to so many others, too. In 2016, the body of Northeastern University student Denis Nuroge was found in the river. He had disappeared on November the 29th. His body was found in Boston's Charles River on December the 31st. Following autopsy and toxicology tests, the city coroner concluded that it was impossible to determine if the young man had drowned by accident or suicide or if he had died somewhere else, quote, somehow died elsewhere and was then placed in the water already dead. His death was officially listed as unknown. Also in the Hudson River in Boston, on February 8, 2014, graduate Eric Munsell was out celebrating his birthday. He was in a bar with friends when he was asked to leave by a bouncer because, according to his mother, he tripped on his way to the bathroom inside the bar at around 11.30 and a few minutes had passed before his friends realised he'd been thrown out. They'd refused to let him back in and they wouldn't allow him to have his coat, so that had been left inside the bar when he was thrown out. The temperature outside was below freezing. Approximately 30 minutes later, his phone was used. At that time, he was heading towards the harbour a completely different direction to where his apartment was. Later, his parents would sue the bar for wrongful death because, for their part, in what they say was not providing a duty of care to their son. He was intoxicated, it seems, yet he was given no help. The lawsuit claimed that he was given no assistance despite his impaired state. In the lawsuit, his friends state that they did observe him appearing to be uncoordinated, staggering while walking and intoxicated when he was on the dance floor. The bouncer had apparently stood at the exit and watched as Eric stumbled off down the street, quote, weaving unsteadily on his feet. Other witnesses reported seeing him stumbling and falling into snowbanks, and the surveillance footage corroborates their reports. He was observed walking falteringly back towards the direction in which his home lay, weaving across the street as he did so, and with his arms crossed over his chest to try to warm himself up. So he had started heading towards the harbour and the water, but then he was seen again heading home. So how did he get back down to the water? He was also seen by a witness attempting to get in to a residence on the North End area, which was located in the correct direction for his apartment. He must have been truly intoxicated then, but why would he then head down to the water again? And if he'd been stumbling and falling, how did he even make it to the waterfront? Well, in a very bizarre coincidence, at the same time as police detective Thomas Leahy was searching for Eric in the area of the Long Wharf, he spotted a man in the river struggling to pull himself out of it. The man was trying to climb up the stone wall that bordered the water, and the detective rushed to his aid. He pulled him out of the water, and the man appeared to be a non-English speaker, and he was not able to explain how he had ended up in the water. It's possible that he was in the country illegally, perhaps, and maybe he was frightened to say any more and just wanted to get away. Had something happened that had made him fall in the water? Had he nearly been killed too, or was it just coincidence? Well, Eric's body was discovered in the exact same spot in the water, but two months later, a passerby had seen his body floating. But why did it take so long for his body to be found there, if that's where the detective had been searching? How did two months pass by? unless his body had become caught on weeds or something in the water. Had his body been in the water all that time? His initial autopsy said there were no signs of foul play. On February the 20th, 2016, 23-year-old James Dyer's body was found in the water, near Murillo's Marina, at Commercial Street in Portland. It was 51 days after he disappeared, while out celebrating New Year's Eve. Had he been in the water all that time? 
The Coast Guard had constantly been out looking for him in the two months that he was missing. The water had been repeatedly searched with ultra-sophisticated sonar equipment. Volunteer searchers had also repeatedly looked everywhere for him. James was an avid sailor and swimmer as well as an outdoorsman. He'd last been seen as he left Pearl Nightclub with two friends in the early hours of New Year's Day. The police said they'd reviewed all available footage from security cameras dotted around the area, but found no clues in them. Police spokesman Chris Hardiman expressed his perplexity. He said he's with a group of friends and then, he's missing, we've heard nothing from him. His mother Amy, having spoken with his friends, managed to piece together his movements before he vanished. His friends told her that her son suddenly disappeared outside the club on New Year's Eve when the streets were quite busy. Her son's phone appeared to then go dead. So his friends began shouting and calling out for him when they realised they'd lost him. Then they went to where they'd parked their car and waited there, but he never turned up. Unfortunately, his mother wasn't told by then that her son had not joined them back at the car and she wasn't aware that he'd vanished until the following evening. She said it was completely out of character for him to disappear. He was dependable and always contacted her and turned up on time for his job as an ops manager on night shifts at a supermarket. 28-year-old Thomas Hecht also disappeared, this time in Milwaukee, on the 10th of March 2012. He'd been out with friends on a St. Patrick's Day pub crawl. His body wasn't found in the river for nearly two weeks. He lived within walking distance of the bar that they'd gone to, which he left at just after 9pm, but he never made it back to his apartment. Dan Zamelin was reported as missing on April 5th 2009. He'd been at a party, but his friends who were there said that he'd left on his own to meet up with another friend at Minnesota University. They say he was talking with them on his cell phone and was near the Mississippi River Boulevard and St. Clair Avenue. As soon as it was discovered that he was missing, bloodhounds, a helicopter and searchers covered the area where he'd been walking, but they found no trace of him. Bloodhounds did seem to get partial hits on his scent near the river, but his father maintains that they kept stopping in the same place but did not actually go near the river. He also said that his own job was as an open pit miner and he understood land. And when he walked to that area, he didn't believe that someone could just accidentally slip into the water there. But if he did, he said it would have left marks and there were none found. His friend Anna says she was talking to him when he began to become distressed. She left the party and got in her car to go and try and find him, she said. She told newspapers at the time it took a really bad turn. She asked him, where are you? She claimed. All she heard was, oh my gosh, help. And that was the last thing she heard. She said his voice became distant as he said these words, as though he was moving away from his phone. And then the line went dead. She said that she called him back, but he didn't answer the phone anymore. On the other hand, his parents spoke out about this and said that they dispute the accuracy of what his friends have told them, particularly the content of the last phone call. 27 days later, his body was found in water. His mother said the coroner could not determine 100% that he did drown, just that that was where he was found. Weirdly though, she said, he was thrown out of a club the night before for not wearing the right wristband. She said he was separated from his friends and later he told his friends that he was approached by men outside. He said that he ran from these people. Maybe he was supposed to have a tragic accident that night, she said. But even though very intoxicated, he was able to outrun these people. When he was found, it was inside an area that's restricted for the general public to get into. 
Of course, it's usually the case that of all the many times this has happened, police don't put two and two together, especially as they happen in multiple different counties or states. A lady called Nancy from Spirit Lake in Dixon County, Iowa, wrote two or three years back, Last Friday night in Spirit Lake, a young man was stopped and asked for directions. As the car approached, he was grabbed from behind, his hands were tied and he was put in the back seat. The two men then drove him to a remote lake. They untied his hands and held him underwater until they thought he was dead. He faked that he'd drowned. He remained in the water terrified for what felt like hours, and then found his way to a nearby house and the police were called. This young man is related to my sister. When she called the FBI, they told her they didn't see a link. Another weird account reads as follows. But this one was from a while before the current few years' worth of cases, implying that they could have been going on for much longer. Well, this person had attended high school in New York City. He said, I have a strange story. A schoolmate, Michael, he said he had a boat and wanted me to go for a boat ride with him. He may have indicated he had some friends that would also be there. I believe prior to this meeting, he'd asked me what religion I was. At some point, I believe he asked me if I could swim. Also, was I a good swimmer? I would have said yes, a good swimmer. Michael then asked me to meet them in a specific location by the water in Brooklyn or Queens, one of the other. He said, you know where it is and how to get there. I said no. Then he asked about one or two more locations. I said no. He said, take this train and that train. I said no, I'm from the Bronx and I would get lost. Well, he asked me, do I know any desolate area in Brooklyn or Queens? I said no. How about the Bronx? I said, yes, City Island, Orchard Beach. Here is where the story gets strange. Michael says to me, never mind, there's no boat. We were going to lure you there and kill you. You're going to get me in a lot of trouble with my family. I was supposed to bring you there and kill you, and now I'm in trouble with them. I was still trying to have lunch with him as he walked away mad at me because he was now going to get in trouble for not bringing me, the prey, to the water edge. And I don't understand. At the time, other than losing a friend, a lunch buddy, this immediately rolled off my back and I didn't think about it or talk about it for years and years until now. In another case, a woman and her boyfriend were out one night in their car parked near the woods and they sent what happened to Christy Peel, who had been the first person to look into these cases of young men disappearing and being found in rivers. They had got out of their vehicle and taken their dog on the wooded paths around Lake Minnetonka in Minnesota. It was a hot summer evening, but as it was getting dark and they were walking back to their car, they suddenly saw what they describe as a big dark blue van that pulled up on the roadside and stopped. Inside, the man had the lights and seemed to be typing or searching on a police light scanner. The young lady said, my boyfriend and I got scared and so we began to run up the path. Just then, a young man who looked to be in his twenties came walking past us. He was on his own and he looked afraid. We carried on down the path until the boy came running from behind us. When he reached us, he stopped. I asked if he was okay and he replied that he wasn't and was frightened. He apologised for being so messed up and couldn't even begin to talk about it, he said, because it was that terrible. Then he walked off, away from the water and towards the road. The couple were concerned for him and they looked around to find where he'd gone but they couldn't see. When they reached their parked car, they were about to drive off when they noticed a police cruiser. They flashed their headlights at the cop to draw his attention to get him to come over, but the cop sped off in the other direction, and that was that. They dialed 911 from their car and gave information about their concerns, but they said the police didn't do anything. 
She said, I'm sure the boy was running away from the van. It was like the van was waiting for him. That it knew he would be walking that path and was waiting for him there. I know it sounds crazy, but I'm afraid now for the safety of that boy. I wish I'd told him to come with us. He looked terrified. Thank you.